Knowing how to speak and understand a new language can be an invaluable tool when traveling, meeting new friends, or just even to master a new skill. But it's not always simple when you're bogged down by textbooks and structure classes. That's why so many people trust Rosetta Stone. Rosetta Stone is the most trusted language learning program, available on desktop or as an app. It truly immerses you in the language you want to learn, like Spanish, French, Italian, Chinese, and more. You won't just be studying English translations. The Rosetta Stone intuitive process helps you pick up a language naturally, first with words, then phrases, then sentences. Don't put off learning that language. There's no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. Visit rosettastone.com rs10. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com rs10 today. Previously on Mother Country Radicals, members of the New York Panthers form a new militant group. Black Liberation Army could mainly be succinctly stated as a uh, as the opening of a new front in the overall struggle in the uh, United States. And they joined the Weathermen underground. We called each other comrades, and we called each other brothers and sisters. And that was people meeting, you know, in apartments and in dark corners and in places in the woods, talking about how do we fight. How do we help people who are already on the run? And how do we advance the struggle? But while the two groups learn to live off the grid, the FBI breaks its own rules to find them. What the Weathermen were doing was presenting a threat. Like maybe they had the ability to assassinate the president. Maybe they could blow up Congress and kill congressmen, important congressmen. And there were some people who felt anything goes. We got to do this. We got to protect our country. This is Chapter 7. The Belly of the Beast, Part 2. In the early 1970s, the Weather Underground organization launches a new wave of bombings. Another desperate attempt to end the war and draw the attention of law enforcement away from black comrades. And this is actually a difficult part of this story to write about, to research, People don't want to talk about the most militant actions of the underground. Who built bombs and who planted them? That's not something I really want to go into. I'm going to let you down, Zaid. I really don't want to. Oh, uh, no, I'm not going to talk about that. Sorry. I don't think I want to go there. I don't remember. Mm-hmm. That's right. I, I have other people who do remember. Well, shame on them. <laughs> <laughs> My parents, too. Even today, more than 50 years later in the middle of family conversations. Well, again, I can't, I can't say specific, anything specific about, about that. I'm not going to tell you who retrieved <laughs> it, and I'm not going to tell you who put it there, and I'm not going to tell you who worked on it. I won't say it. I don't want you to say it. I guess I would say it this way. Those who know don't tell, and those who tell don't know. So I know some things that I can't tell you. There's a code of silence in the underground. What weatherman Brian Flanagan calls... Omerta. Omerta. That's the honor code of the mafia. He's joking, kind of. But it's a code they take seriously to this day. Don't name names. Don't implicate friends. Loyalty to comrades is deeply ingrained in the underground. It's how they managed to stay alive and out of jail all those years. And there's also, according to Laura Whitehorn, another reason. We developed really sophisticated methods. And why do I want to make those public now? You know, people might want to use them again. 
So no names, no operational secrets. But here's what happened next. From the underground, that radical left-wing group, the Weathermen, has claimed responsibility for yesterday's dynamiting of a statue of a Chicago policeman. The group promises more attacks on the establishment around the entire country starting next week. We told you before about the early bombings carried out by the Weathermen. But this, from late 1970 to mid-1972, is when it becomes an all-out assault. After the second bombing of the Haymarket statue in October of 1970, my mom records a new tape, promising this is only the beginning. The head of the Police Sergeants Association called emotionally for all-out war between the pigs and us. We accepted. Last night, we destroyed the pig again. This time, it begins a fall offensive of youth resistance that will spread from Santa Barbara to Boston back to Kendall. Two days later, weathermen bomb the Marin County Courthouse in solidarity with the so-called Soledad brothers. Two days after that, a Long Island City Courthouse in support of the New York prison riots. And four days later, another bomb. The latest, but probably not the last, terror bombing to take place in this country shattered part of a building on the Harvard campus early this morning. Later, a Boston newspaper received a letter from a soft-styled group of revolutionary women dedicating the blast to Angela Davis. What did you think of the, the bomb at the Harvard Center for International Affairs that the Weather Underground said was in solidarity with you? I mean, you had a lot going on at the time. I, yeah, I did. I did. You know, it was obviously an expression of solidarity and an expression of the movement that we were, were building. That was a powerful idea that there were these white people who really wanted to support uh, the, the Black Liberation Movement. Throughout 1971, weathermen keep up the offensive. They bomb the office of California prisons to protest the killing of Black Panther George Jackson. They bombed the New York Department of Corrections to protest the killing of 29 mostly black inmates during the Attica Rebellion. And they bomb an MIT office linked to one of the architects of the Vietnam War. And then in 1972, the weather underground escalates again. On the eve of Ho Chi Minh's birthday, they take aim at the heart of American military power. I'm Bobby Finger. And I'm Lindsay Weber. Do you ever see a new face or name on your news feeds and say, who the heck is that? Our podcast, Who Weekly, is everything you need to know about the celebrities you don't. Think of us as your cheat code to People Magazine, your glossary for Hollywood, a shortcut to understanding pop culture at large. For the past eight years, Who Weekly has been telling listeners everything they need to know about the celebrities they don't. The New Yorker says we spelunk deep into the demimonde with convivial delight. That's a direct quote. Mostly, we're going to explain to you Irish star Barry Keoghan's sudden rise to fame and relationship with a not-so-under-the-radar pop princess named Sabrina. The fake wedding Real Housewives star Cynthia Bailey had to promote a limo rental company. And why all the Gen Zers you know are talking about a guy named Benson Boone. Each episode goes deep into the biggest celebrity stories of the moment. And if you're still confused, we even have a weekly call-in episode where we answer the most burning celebrity queries. Who Weekly airs twice weekly with brand new episodes on Tuesdays and Fridays. Listen and follow Who Weekly, an Odyssey podcast, available now for free on the Odyssey app and wherever you get your podcasts. Here's how my dad tells the story. In a D.C. safe house, a young woman pulls on a dark wig and thick glasses. She paints her fingertips with clear nail polish so she won't leave prints. She packs a briefcase, a bunch of papers, and a device about the size of a flashlight. 
A friend drives her across town and drops her at the main visitor's entrance to the Pentagon at 9 a.m. She heads up the stairs and through the marble portico. She's been coming here for weeks, roaming the halls, eating breakfast alongside civil servants and military personnel. Nobody asks her who she is or what she's doing there. She's a young white woman, dressed like a government secretary, in skirt and blouse. She fits right in. And she knows exactly where she's headed, through the maze-like hallways and into a women's bathroom in the Air Force wing. She unscrews a drain on the floor, pulls out the device, and slides it into a pipe. Then she replaces the drain cap, gathers her things, and slips back out of the bathroom. She leaves the building and hops into an idling car, which quickly disappears into traffic. And then, in the middle of the night, around 12.30 a.m., the Pentagon's emergency line rings. In 25 minutes, a bomb will explode in the Air Force section of the Pentagon. I'm calling from the weather underground. And believe me, this is no prank. Clear the area. Get everyone out. You have 25 minutes. Vietnam will win. There's a quick scramble to empty the building. The explosion destroyed one of the Pentagon's 140 women's restrooms and blasted out a wall on the fourth floor. No one was injured. The explosion came at 1 a.m., just moments after the Pentagon's duty officer received a warning which said the Pentagon would be bombed in celebration of Ho Chi Minh's birthday. From 1970 to 1975, the Weather Underground carries out at least 25 of these bomb attacks against the American government and U.S. corporations targeting some of the most secure, well-guarded facilities on the planet. Not just the Pentagon, but the State Department, Gulf Oil, Bank of America headquarters, and the U.S. Capitol. At one minute before one o'clock this morning, the switchboard at the Capitol received a phone call. A man's voice said a bomb would go off in the building in half an hour. There were three early morning bomb blasts. About 20 offices, all of them empty at the time, were damaged. The men's room a shambles, bombing demolished, bricks and plaster ripped from wall. The Associated Press got a phone call from a man saying he was with the Weather Underground. The group promises more attacks on the establishment around the entire country starting next week. The explosions come in the middle of the night while the buildings are deserted. And weathermen always call in warnings beforehand to make sure their targets are empty. They're determined after the townhouse to avoid killing. But still, they are setting off bombs in public places, pretty close to the textbook definition of terrorism, the unlawful use of violence and intimidation, especially against civilians in the pursuit of political aims. And after the January 6th insurrection, it's also worth asking what it means to attack symbols of the U.S. government, for political protests to turn violent, for a group of citizens to decide to go to war with their own country. What about the fact that, you know, setting off bombs, even if they're, the targets are government targets, there's a sort of an implicit threat or a violence behind that that could terrorize people? I don't think I don't think so. You know, I think the word terrorist is is misapplied to us, and I, and the reason is obvious. If if you take terrorism and define it as attacks on ordinary people for a political end um, to intimidate and frighten in order to win a political point, then terrorism is 
everywhere. But the main terrorists in the last 150 years have been governments. We were objecting to the terrorist war. We were not terrorists. Of course, it's possible ordinary people did feel threatened. People who worked in government buildings or people who just saw the carnage on TV and felt less safe. They could have felt, understandably, that it's a slippery slope, a danger to democracy when a group of citizens decide the best way to make political change is through violence. Weathermen insist, though, now and at the time, that their bombs are symbolic, not intended to terrorize, but to make a point. Our action has been against the property and the symbols and the institutions of the ruling class. At this stage of the struggle, it's our propaganda. And it is true that no one was ever seriously injured or killed in the Weather Underground bombings, except for their own people, Terry, Teddy, and Diana at the townhouse. But meanwhile, as the Weather Underground is engaged in this symbolic war with the U.S. government and capitalism, a real war is going on closer to home. In 1973, in Queens, a 10-year-old boy named Clifford Glover is out walking with his stepdad to work. Clifford is carrying something. Some say it's a candy bar, others that he had his own little wrench so he could pretend to be working at his stepfather's junkyard. It's just after dawn. Suddenly a car pulls up. Two men jump out, holding guns. Clifford and his stepfather think they're being robbed, and they run. And one of the men opens fire. At least two bullets hit Clifford in the back. He dies later that day in the hospital. Street violence is not uncommon in New York City. This past weekend, one of its victims was 10-year-old Clifford Glover, who was shot to death by a policeman. It turns out the man who shot Clifford Glover is an undercover cop. Later that week, reporters talked to Clifford's mother. I feel like that it it was murder because he was a kid. And it seemed like to me that he would have had an understanding that was a kid and could have crippled him and not just shot him down. Clifford Glover's killing is a foundational event for a whole generation of black activists. BLA soldier Sekou Odinga remembers how the long history of police violence against black people seemed to culminate in this boy's death. Whenever they murdered someone in the community, it was always justifiable. Even if it was a little kid like Cliffy Glover in South Jamaica, Queens. It was always justifiable, even if it was a little kid like Cliffy Glover. The cop who shot Clifford, Officer Thomas Shea, claims he saw a gun in the boy's hand. But the gun is never found. Officer Shea is tried for the shooting, the first NYPD officer in 50 years to be charged with a murder committed while on duty. But he's acquitted. And of course, this is all too familiar. After the murders of Tamir Rice, Michael Brown, Laquan McDonald, the relentless sameness of police violence against black people, black children in America, how little has changed. You can still hear the frustration in Sekou's voice 50 years later. And they, they murdered the kids, and then they find that there was nothing wrong with that, and no one's held responsible for that. So uh, the army... The army held them responsible. In other words, things like this would happen and there would be a BLA response to that. 
And that, that response was, yes, an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. You cannot just wantonly come in uh, and murder people in the community without a military political consequence. In the three years leading up to Clifford Glover's death, 60% of people killed by New York police had been black. At a time when black people made up only 20% of the city's population. The numbers in other major cities, Philadelphia, Milwaukee, Detroit, are even worse. Hundreds of black people killed every year with little attention and no accountability. To the BLA, it feels like the police have already gone to war with the black community. They were the occupying army. They were the ones that were murdering black men, women, and children. And the BLA decides to fight back. People were in such a rage by what had happened, by people being killed on the streets, by the, the, the blatant fascism, you know, uh, by what was going on, that I think that people were like, let me get some licks in before I die. From 1970 to 1975, the BLA carries out a series of attacks in retaliation against the police. Two young police officers were killed and four members of a militant group called the Black Liberation Army were identified by New York police as prime suspects. The Black Liberation Army has been implicated in the murders of four New York policemen and attacks on others. Mainstream white media mostly treats the attacks as a deranged response to nothing. Last week in New York City, for no apparent reason, a gang of four men opened fire on two young police officers, killing them both. And white people across the country, officers and ordinary citizens, are terrified and angry, while the police unions stoke the outrage. Nine policemen killed. They say killed. They were murdered, out and out viciously murdered. Now, the civilians that you say are killed by policemen, they're not murdered. If they're killed, it's, it's, it's because the policeman killed in defense of his life or in defense of someone else's life. So the police escalate again in response. And pretty soon, militant groups all across the country are at war with the cops. After the shooting, a 70-man police strike force moved into the trouble area. In the shootout, police guns wounded five young men, one fatally. No police were hit. They were shooting to kill me, and I was shooting to kill them. This is not the good old days like the cowboy days. Uh, it looks to me like it's open warfare. It was gunfire. One 21-year-old black man was killed. Three were wounded. The current situation is tense, with police urging calm and at least one black militant threatening revenge. But when you go to war with the police, you pretty quickly wind up outnumbered and outgunned. By 1973, most of the original BLA members have been arrested or killed. A decentralized network that once numbered hundreds of people has nearly been wiped out. I asked Jihad Abdelmumit what it was like to be at war with the police as a teenager. Was he scared? I love that question. I love it because um, I'm scared now for my son who's 17. <laughs> and just like he is right now, as I was then, we were not scared at all. Bring it. That was our attitude. And when we, when we were captured, we were trying to escape. Wasn't crying for any lawyer help or anything like that. Not the young BLA, not my crew, not the teenagers. You put us in jail, we're trying to escape. 
My Aunt Jennifer remembers the intensity of the law enforcement crackdown at the time, how quickly it seemed to decimate the black underground. The police were, at this point, systematically looking for people. We went to so many funerals and uh, so many um, visits in prisons. I mean, you kind of lived with this fear and reality that people were going to be killed. And for Jamal Joseph, it's clear. He and the other BLA fugitives can't survive much longer. When you were in the Panthers above ground, you would wake up in the morning thinking this might be the day that you got arrested or killed. In the BLA, you woke up thinking this is the day. Hi, this is Amy Poehler here to tell you about a new improvised show from Paper Kite Podcasts, the team that brought you Say More with Dr. Sheila. Check out our new parody podcast, Women Talking About Murder. It's a show about women talking about murder. Every episode features special guests, twists, turns, and the mystery of a missing co-host. Available on the Odyssey app or wherever you get your podcasts. In the early 1970s, FBI COINTELPRO specialists and New York City Red Squad detectives team up to track down and neutralize the BLA members who remain at large. They're particularly focused on one person, opening an entire investigation, codenamed Chesrob, into BLA leader Joanne Chesimard, who's taken the revolutionary name Asada Shakur. That imperialism has to go. It is a poison that is killing people all over this world. The priorities of this planet have to be completely changed. And instead of Assad is just 25 years old. But like Angela Davis or Bernadine, she's smart, charismatic, and militant. A natural leader. And as other BLA leaders have been arrested or killed, she's taken on an increasingly important and visible role in the organization. Asada had gotten more and more involved and had, you know, become elevated within the ranks of the Black Liberation Army. Robert Daly, deputy commissioner of the New York City Police, describes Asada as the final wanted fugitive, the soul of the gang, the mother hen who kept them together, kept them moving, kept them shooting. And the government launches a nationwide manhunt to catch her. The weathermen are also being hunted at the time, but there are crucial differences in how law enforcement treats black and white people, even among most wanted criminals. My mom was once pulled over by the police while she was on the run. I was driving a pickup truck alone, and I was stopped by, you know, a state trooper with those kind of sunglasses that, where you can't see his face, very young. I'm going through in my mind the name on my ID, which is fairly recent, and my birth date and my story of who I am and where I came from. And he comes up to the car, and I, you know, rolled down the window, and. And then I realized that my hand was trembling. <laughs> An embarrassing moment <laughs> for somebody being tough uh, and declaring war. Put his hand on mine and he said, don't be afraid of us. And he said, I'm just stopping you because your, your license plate is falling off in the back. And I said, thank you so much. I'm really grateful for this. I appreciate it. White radicals, even wanted fugitives, get the benefit of the doubt. 
They can talk their way out of a traffic ticket, walk through the halls of the Pentagon with a bomb in a purse. They are, in some key way, invisible to American law enforcement. The BLA would have no such protection. On May 2nd, 1973, in the middle of the night, a state trooper pulls over a car on the New Jersey Turnpike, a white Pontiac Le Mans with three people inside. The car, according to the police report, has a broken taillight, but that's often used as a pretext, police code for driving while black. Trooper James Harper demands the driver's license and registration and notices a discrepancy, something suspicious. He calls it in. Trooper Harper doesn't know it yet, but the driver is underground BLA member Sundiata Akoli. The other two passengers are Zaid, the man I'm named after, and wanted fugitive Asada Shakur. Another trooper, Werner Forster, soon arrives as backup. And at this point, recollections of what happened diverge. But everyone agrees, somebody starts shooting. Trooper Forster is killed with bullets from his own gun. Asada and Zaid are both hit, and the three BLA members jump in the car and speed away. But they're chased down the turnpike by other cops, stopped five miles down the road. Asada gets out and walks toward the police, holding her bleeding arms over her head. I was shot with my arms in the air, then shot again in the back, and then left on the ground to die. And the next thing I knew, you know, they were um, coming by me and saying, is she dead yet? Is she dead yet? But Asada doesn't die. She's taken into custody, locked to her bed at Middlesex General Hospital, charged with murder, attempted murder, armed robbery, and kidnapping. Sundiata is captured soon afterwards, hiding in the woods nearby. And Zaid Shakur's body is found in a ditch next to their abandoned car. He was just 32 years old when he died. In the BLA, people expected to be killed. But Zaid wasn't a soldier. He was a member of the support network. And his comrades, like Jamal Joseph and Sekou Odinga, are shaken by his death. It broke my heart because Zaid was not an angry person. Zaid wasn't in the military wing of the Black Panther Party. Is it hard? It's real hard. It's really tough. Uh, Zay was a very close comrade of mine. I I considered him my brother. The tape is hard to make out, but Sekou says it hit hard. It hit real hard because Zaid was a very close comrade of mine, and I considered him my brother. So now, with Asada in jail, the BLA is hanging by a thread. Remaining members reach out to Bernadine's sister, my Aunt Jennifer, to connect them with the white underground for help. I would be asked to go visit so many um, people in New York City jails, Panthers, Black Liberation people. And they all thought I would help them escape. And I couldn't. I did not have any resources, nor was that what I could go back and make a plan to do. There was a piece of it that was very um, complicated for me to digest because I was the one who had to go back and face everyone and I saw what their lives were like and I went to you know, their houses and helped cook food for their kids and, you know, and then all the quote, what we can do seemed pretty little, seemed pretty little. 
Two weeks after the New Jersey Turnpike shooting, the Weather Underground tries to express the solidarity they feel with the BLA. A bomb explodes in the 103rd police precinct in Queens. No one is hurt. In the accompanying communique, the Weather Underground claims the attack is a response to police crimes, including the murder of 10-year-old Clifford Glover and the killing of Zaid Shakur, black warrior, former Minister of Information of the New York Black Panther Party, killed by New Jersey State Troopers. It's the first time my parents, in their own particular way, would memorialize Zaid Shakur. The second would be my birth, just a few years later. Next time on Mother Country Radicals. I want to have a baby. Let's have a baby. And he said, sure. (laughs) Well, I think I thought that the Vietnamese had kids, and they continued fighting. (laughs) I think that my, my perspective on kind of where was I in history was other women do this, and I'm a revolutionary, and I can do both. A generation of weather kids arrives as members of the underground struggle over what to do next. There's a need for an underground, and if you decide to go above ground, then you're being racist. That's what happens when you purge someone from a political organization. The best thing that can happen to them is they cease to exist politically. The worst thing is that they actually cease to exist. I, I said what they wanted to hear, and I, I didn't know what was right. Unlike you. Not like me, but I went there. Mother Country Radicals is an original podcast from Odyssey and Crooked Media. It's produced by Dustlight Productions. I'm Zaid Ayers-Dorn, your host, writer, and executive producer. From Crooked Media, executive producers are John Favreau, Sarah Geismer, Lyra Smith, and Allison Falzetta, with special thanks to Katie Long. From Dustlight, executive producer is Misha Youssef. Arwen Nix is our executive editor. Ariana Garib-Lee is our senior producer. Stephanie Cohn is the producer. Ty Jones is our historical consultant. All three also helped with writing on the series. This episode was sound designed by Ariana Garib-Lee. Valentino Rivera is the senior engineer. Andy Clausen is the composer. For Odyssey, Tim Clark is head of audio content. Lindsey Grant is head of platform marketing. And Brian Swarth leads podcast marketing. Special thanks to Melissa Providence, Lizzie Roberti Denahan, Andy Slater, and Danny Kutrick. Thanks to our development and operations coordinator at Dustlight, Rachel Garcia, apprentice Shamari Kirkwood, and Mark Wilkening, and the team at Chicago Recording Company. Mother Country Radicals is an Odyssey original podcast. <laughs>